Imagine you're leafing through a cookbook from the 19th century filled with recipes from a southern family, recipes treasured as heirlooms. What if the person who actually created those recipes went uncredited? The process began when white women were trying to record the recipes of their household for the next generation. And they would neglect to say, why would you say that Sally did this or that? Because it was understood. You owned Sally, you owned her recipe. It just went on to the page as owned by you. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm Tina Antolini. Today, a story we've done in collaboration with the public radio show that I've worked for for years, State of the Reunion. It's a story about retrieving a culinary history that, for years, went unnoticed. So there's this one anecdote that Tony Tipton Martin tells that encapsulates a feeling, a feeling that helped prompt what a lot of the rest of this story is about. Tony had just become the food editor at the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the first black food editor at a major metropolitan newspaper. She registered to go to her first conference of professional food journalists in Dallas. And the night she arrived, she'd been invited to this fancy cocktail party. And so I was in this lovely environment at the mansion on Turtle Creek, and I was really feeling excited and privileged, and the doors to the... uh, ballroom opened and someone asked me to get them a drink and um, I spent the rest of the weekend um, in my room I only came out at spaces where I really thought I needed to like at the cocktail hour but I was really really hurt now that may seem like a small thing being mistaken for a waitress something you could easily shake off but Tony says when it comes to African Americans and food a mistake like that into a whole reservoir of hurt. African Americans have this long history of servitude in this country when we start talking about food and food service. And it's a difficult space for us. This story is about Tony's effort to change that, not just for the future, but to change our understanding of the past, too. So I didn't really fall in love with the culinary arts. <laughs> the culinary arts pursued me. <laughs> and it was one of those love affairs that, you know, that a girl plays coy. And I, I, was, uh, I did a little dance with, with food for a while. It started when Tony was in college, studying journalism, and a professor suggested she might get into the newspaper industry more quickly if she went for features instead of hard news. She got her first job working part-time on the recipes section of a black weekly in Los Angeles. And from there, she got hired by the LA Times. And it was there that the first questions were raised for me about inequity in publishing an African-American stories in the food industry. She'd been assigned to the cookbook and recipe section of the paper. And she noticed they had no cookbooks by black people. And I thought, this does not match the story that I grew up with. There are black women cooking all around me and cooking well and contributing to society in more ways than just putting the food on the table through this food. Um, But I did not see that reflected. And whenever they were mentioned, it was in some sort of an afterthought. And they were definitely overshadowed by the white women in the kitchen. All of this struck Tony as odd, but she didn't really know what to do about it. And then one day, she happened upon a book that would be the catalyst for her work for the next few decades. 
the newsroom had a habit of giving away books that were sent in, and Tony found a cookbook by a woman named Lena Richard. And she's from New Orleans, but there was no photograph of her on this book, so I had no idea that she was black. And it turns out that that was a reprint in 85 of a book that Lena published herself in 1939. Lena Richard, Tony learned later, was an African-American chef in New Orleans. She'd owned multiple restaurants, started a cooking school, her own frozen foods business, and hosted her own television cooking show in the 1940s. We're talking long before Julia Child did. And she wrote her own cookbook. When she published it in 1939, she self-published with her own photograph in the, in the front piece. Within a year, James Beard lobbied on her behalf and the book was reissued by Houghton Mifflin. Um, which was significant for a black woman in the 40s um, to be published in the trade. But what they did was change the title from Lena Richard's New Orleans Cookbook or something like that to the New Orleans Cookbook, and they removed her photograph from the book. So even in her success, Lena Richard's blackness was hidden from view. But for Tony, the cookbook was a document that could begin to tell a story. And then came another light bulb moment. At a conference, she heard a speech by a man named John Edgerton. He was a white journalist who'd written about Southern food and civil rights, and later led the founding of the Southern Foodways Alliance, by the way. And he said one of the most provocative things I had ever heard anyone say. He said something to the effect that if it weren't for black women in the South, we would still be eating the same boring, bland food that they eat in England. Tony ran up to him afterwards to thank him for speaking on behalf of her ancestors. And he said to me, wait right there, I have something for you. And so um, he came in with a stack of papers, which were a um, Xerox copy of a black cookbook, which was published in 1912. And he said, I found this at the Library of Congress. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but something compelled me to copy it. And now I know it was for you. And he gave it to me. It was called Kentucky Cookbook Easy and Simple for Any Cook by a Colored Woman, written by a Mrs. W.T. Hayes. In that book, Tony found recipes for lemon foam, coconut layer cake, and graham popovers. And it was on after that. Gradually, she began to realize that there was a whole world of black cookbooks that had never gotten mainstream attention. She started hunting for them at antiquarian bookstores around the country. Once eBay was around, well, you can imagine how thrilling that was. These books held primary source material that Tony could use to rewrite the culinary history of America. In the late 18th century, you're able to see that they possessed a technical and organizational managerial type skill set that no one attributes to slaves. The more she read and thought about these cooks, the more Tony realized their vast range and technique, the likes of which today's cooks might not have. So if you stop for a minute and remove ourselves from the modern day and think about cooking in a slave plantation type kitchen, you're cooking over a wood fire. The idea that you would have to determine the temperature of that fire by how many logs you put on it. And the fact that she would have, this woman would have probably gathered the wood to build the fire means that she was strong, you know, before even measuring the temperature of it. Imagine trying to bake a cake or a souffle under those circumstances. And also, think about what was on the line for these slave cooks. Their well-being depended on the success of their dishes. That was daily life. 
it required them to be masters of their craft. And not in some mysterious voodoo magic kind of innate ability way, which was the other way they were portrayed, was that when they were given any kind of recognition for the work that they did, it was based on the thought that that just came to them, right? That they were naturally talented and born this way. Tony realized that the books in her collection, now 300 strong, narrated a social history for African Americans in the U.S. dating back to 1827. There are cookbooks from the era after the Civil War's grant of freedom. In the early 20th century, once we had freedmen's communities and historically black colleges coming on to educate former slaves, then there's a whole movement of books that relate to educating people. There are books from the emerging black middle class, many of whom worked as caterers. This is how you can have a successful catering company. Chicken salad for 100, ham dinner for 100. <laughs> Eliza's cookbook was published in 1936 by the Negro Culinary Art Club of Los Angeles, and it features baked oysters Mexican style with spiked tomato sauce and cheese, a sardine mousse, and a salad of grapefruit and avocados. There are books from the era of social upheaval and civil rights, books when black is beautiful became a mantra. There's about 10 books published in the 60s, all with the title Soul Food. That's it, just soul food. So. These cookbooks mirrored the evolution of black culture in the U.S. It began to form what I saw as an opposing image to the existing image for African-American cooks, which is Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben. Smiling, happy Aunt Jemima, famous for her secret recipe, pancakes, waffles, and buckwheat. What's your happy thought for today? Well, Mr. Lyon, folks says you can't buy happiness, but you can earn it. Yes, Aunt Jemima, and I guess we all want to be happy. This mammy character that was flipping pancakes and taking care of the children was not the woman that was on the pages of these books. Tony decided to call her project the Jemima Code. It became a traveling presentation she gave around the country, and it soon will be a book of its own. The Jemima Code is an opportunity for readers to have a peek into the minds and hearts of people that we formerly thought had neither of those and that they were just mindlessly stirring pots on instruction. As evidence, we're going to introduce you to two of the people in the Jemima Code, one living and one past, though their legacies are both very much with us today. That's just ahead. There's the sponsorship music, and today I want to tell you about a company that got started way back in 1896 in the town of South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. That's where a guy named Joseph Lodge settled and started the Blaylock Foundry, which he named after his preacher. What did he make? Cast iron pots and pans. Fourteen years in, the foundry burned down. But they rebuilt and renamed the company Lodge Manufacturing. More than 100 years later, Joseph Lodge's great-grandsons are the CEO and the president. You can learn more by going to lodgemfg.com. Now, back to the story. The Jemima Code might seem like all history, the distant past, until you show up in the dining room of a restaurant and realize each one of those cookbooks represents a real life, a real cook's story, one that still has resonance today. Are we sitting under your great-grandmother now? We are. That's her doing her uh, fruitcakes that she um, actually received a, a letter of commendation from LBJ. 
Yeah, she sent those out to the veterans. Uh, well, actually, to the soldiers in Vietnam. Uh, she did it every year during the war. I'm sitting in a restaurant hung with old black and white photographs in Houston, Texas, with chef Chris Williams. He owns this place, and he named it Lucille's for his great-grandmother, Lucille Bishop Smith. And then this is her serving up Joe Lewis. You know, he's getting one of those hot rolls. And then that's her with Martin Luther King. When Chris first started cooking, he didn't really know he was taking up the family legacy. He worked in restaurants all around Europe before he came back to Texas and started learning who Lucille was. There was the lore of great-grandmommy, and I knew her. She passed when I was six. And I knew little stories, but it never really mattered to me because at that time as a kid, you don't appreciate anything, and I had no idea. By all accounts, Lucille Bishop-Smith was a powerhouse, a businesswoman, teacher, and groundbreaker. Her chili biscuits, one-bite snacks topped with a dollop of chili, they were served on American Airlines. She came up with the idea of making an instant mix for hot rolls before Bisquick and Pillsbury did, and she sold it at her own general store. And from the store, she added on a factory in the back to where she could produce, mass produce, these delicious hot rolls that everybody was going crazy over. But for all those accomplishments, she's still little known enough today that it took her own great-grandson till he was an adult to know the whole story. I found that she was a real chef, you know? Like she was a serious chef, a craftsman. Chris's grandmother, Lucille's daughter, has kept all of her letters. And in them, Chris found evidence of how she viewed her work as a chef, as an artistic endeavor. These letters to her kids, she's always talking about, keep your creativity. Never say no to anything. This is how I got where I am. Be passionate, be inventive, you know, do what you love. Lucille wasn't just a groundbreaker in terms of introducing instant hot roll mix to the world. She wanted to run her own business without oversight from her husband. She filed Femme Soul which means, you know, translates as a woman alone. Her marriage was not annulled, but it gave her the right to operate under her own name. Because in those times, a woman couldn't do anything without her husband signing off. Her career took off. Lucille's hot rolls and chili biscuits are now bestsellers at Chris's restaurant. They share the menu, though, with recipes he learned cooking in Europe. You could have a chili biscuit, and then follow it up with braised pork shank with sauce aguadulce and a tomato confit. And Chris says those contrasts still throw people for a loop. He still struggles with the perception of who an African-American chef should be, enough that he was hesitant to give his menu even as much Southern flavor as it has. And I used to joke about it, and I guess I still do a little bit, but Having trained in Europe and worked in Paris and worked with some of the top chefs in the country like Jose Andres, and to be an African-American chef and to come back and fry chicken and have people go, you know, rave over the fried chicken, I was a little, I was a little hesitant to go that route because it's very easy to be pigeonholed as a, a soul food cook and not to see the range of what we really do and what we're capable of doing. He's not alone in being frustrated with that. Another chef, featured in the Jemima Code, has encountered it too. When they come looking for soul food, I say, honey, you have to tell me where your soul is. Now, if your soul is in Mississippi, I know what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you some greens and cornbread. If your soul is in New Orleans, I'm not going to give you greens and cornbread. I'm going to give you shrimp creole. I'm going to give you jambalaya. That's our soul in New Orleans that Creole flair. 
Chef Leah Chase is 92 years old and still going strong. I meet her in the kitchen of her restaurant, Dookie Chase's, where she still works every day. If you live in New Orleans like I do, meeting Ms. Chase is kind of like meeting Queen Elizabeth if you're British. She's royalty here and approached with adoration and reverence. Part of that comes from her food. People will routinely travel the length of the city to lunch on her red beans and fried chicken. And her gumbo zerb, filled with nine greens and smoked sausage, it is cult-worthy. But it also comes from her presence. Leah Chase has been running her restaurant with grace and excellence for nearly seven decades. And yet, she'll still turn her big smile on the smallest child with as much warmth as a president. I'm serious. She served both. Presidents come and go, and I love serving them. It's an honor. It's really, truly an honor. But never forget that little man who comes and buy a sandwich who made you. Kids used to come buy a potato sandwich. It was too funny. They call it a hungry man. Oh, Miss Dookie, I want a hungry man. And put some gravy on it. <laughs> so they get that fried potato bread, put a little brown gravy on it. Those kind of things make you so you never forget that either. Everybody plays a part. But the ruby red painted walls of Ms. Chase's restaurant didn't always hold the portraits of luminaries. Leah Chase grew up poor in segregated Louisiana. She got a job working in restaurants in New Orleans' French Quarter, and that's where she first learned what fine dining could be like. When she came in to run her husband's family's restaurant in 1946, she decided it should have fine white tablecloths, just like the white restaurants. I could not understand why, because you're in a black community, why can't you have that? We were so poor coming up, and we came up poor, but on Sundays you had a starch and iron tablecloth made out of flour sacks that you bleached and embroidered and crocheted around. So that's when company came. So I tell them, I want that white tablecloth no matter what you serve. If you serve them a sandwich, I want them to eat it on a white tablecloth because that's what you do when company comes. And everybody who enters that door is company for me. There have been white tablecloths on her tables ever since. And this is how Ms. Chase says she was able to accomplish what she has, despite growing up as an African-American woman in a society that didn't believe she could be a chef, through sheer persistence. All you do in life is do what you gotta do. It's a good model. <laughs> it's bad grandma, but a good model. <laughs> well, and part of that is like just believing in yourself, right? Yeah, you have to believe in yourself. You know, you, you can't doubt yourself. So in my case, you know, all these chefs that we work with are all certified chefs. They're, they're educated, they were trained, they were formally trained, I was not. So I read every book I can read and do everything I can do. You want to talk about fake it till you make it? That's what I had to do. These days, cooking is embraced as an art form. Chefs are described with the honorific rock stars, and they're treated like celebrities. But for a long time, cooking wasn't so glamorous. As the racial politics of this nation have been evolving, the respect and cultural currency of cooking has changed as well. It means that chefs like Leah Chase, who bridged these eras, are receiving the credit they're due for their accomplishments. But Tony says, it takes something like the Jemima Code to make us realize how many more chefs paved the way. Chefs whose food we might not have otherwise known about. 
This Jemima Code work, it's about all of us. It's about all of our future and those coming behind us. They set a tone that says we were creative, technologically smart, organized, educated, just like you. Or as Leah Chase puts it, it's about looking back and moving forward. My daddy always said never look back because if God wanted you to look back, he'd put eyes behind your head. <laughs> but sometimes you look back, but you take what you see back and you bring it forward. You don't hang back there. You bring it forward. You can learn more about the Jemima Code and see just how brilliant Leah Chase's smile really is by going to our website at southernfoodways.org. A slightly different version of this story will air on NPR affiliates across the country for Black History Month. That's on the PRX and NPR show State of the Reunion. Keep your ears out for that. Gravy's theme music is by Mr. Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. In just a few seconds, we'll have a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... So, did you know that Gravy is not just a podcast? That's right. Gravy is also a quarterly journal full of print essays, photography, and art about the South through the lens of food. A recent issue featured stories about food justice efforts in post-Katrina New Orleans and racial coding at fast food chains. There is one sure way that you can get a copy each time it comes out. You just have to become a member of the Southern Foodways Alliance. Then, four times a year, you can look forward to the gorgeous print gravy appearing in your mailbox like magic. To find out more about becoming a member, just go to our website, southernfoodways.org. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy... You need to be a soldier. If you want to be a farmer today, you've got to be a soldier, whether it's, a, you know, whether it's literally or figuratively. You have to be able to soldier on. That's coming up next time. You can follow us on Facebook by liking the Southern Foodways Alliance. Same goes for Twitter. We're at Potlicker, and I'm at Tina Antolini. That's also my handle on Instagram if you'd like more visuals served up with your audio. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>